Hello, bonjour and salam alaikum. Welcome to Stand Up From The Crowd, the first live podcast dedicated to no BS leadership. If you like us, right? Uh, tell your friends and colleagues to go uh, over Apple Podcasts and Spotify and to give us a five-star review because here on this podcast, we are having amazing conversations and sharing amazing stories. And today's topic is all about being a challenger. And here's the thing, the best leaders do not simply move past an obstacles, right? They spend time on it, they find meaning in it, and they use it to their advantage. And our standout guest today, Anna Diwar, is the co-CEO and co-founder of Tidal Equality. During our conversation, she's going to share how she breaks the mold of conformity by challenging the world's most influential organizations to embrace equitable innovation to build a just future for all. So please help me welcome Anna to the Stand Up Podcast. Thank you so much, Dorina. It's so awesome to be here. And so I'm excited for this conversation. Thank you so much. And this is going to be a great conversation because today we are the challengers. And you know, as a challenger myself, I always thought and feel like I was the black sheep, you know, the weirdo. But today <laughs> we are going to talk about how, you know, you can cultivate a challenger mindset. Why is it important and how it can impact your personal and your professional life. But let's get started with you because this is all about you. If I would ask um, your friends, family members to describe you using three words, what would that be? Well, I would say the three words would probably be kind first, because I think I live with my heart on my sleeve all the time, um, probably to a fault. Um, I would say, I would hope maybe brave would be one of those words, because, you know, being a challenger, I think, is really part of my personality. And that has meant standing up to powerful people in the course of my life and sometimes even in my own family and saying, like, what I feel to be true. Uh, so brave might be the second word. Um, and I think curious would be the last word because I feel like I never want to stop learning. Um, I always feel like I'm new, you know, and that I'm fresh and I want to know more. And so um, for me, like curiosity is probably the biggest driving force uh, in my personality. And in fact, it's probably the driving force for my challenge kind of personality as well. Yeah. Yeah. So talking about curiosity, and I agree with you, I do believe, you know, being curious is, is very important because this is what pushes you to learn more, to understand better, and to maybe uh, take action mm -hmm. on things that you feel like are, are not quite right, right? Curiosity is very essential. So now, can you tell us about a time when um, you face, uh, you, um, let me get it, Right. What are some of the most significant challenges you faced while growing up? Hmm. Growing up. I would say it's funny because it, like a few different moments flashed through my mind to that question. I would say a feeling of non-belonging maybe was the overarching challenge. And it probably like led me to my work. Um I don't know why, but I just always felt like I didn't quite fit. I didn't quite fit any mold. Um, I was enormously tall at a very young age. I was a Jewish person raised in a Jewish tradition, but I didn't come from, I came from a mixed marriage. So I didn't kind of fully fit in the Jewish community um, or I didn't always feel like I fit, even if I did fit. Um, 
I would say like that, the, the challenge that I faced was that feeling of, do I belong? And like, should I be here? You know, should, you know, and what value can I bring? And so I would say like, I, you know, in my childhood, I think I really struggled with a lot of insecurities. It's funny because I think if you knew me as a child, you wouldn't have known that, but that was what it was for me. Um, so you know, insecurities and also a desire to be seen and heard. And so like an, an interesting combination of, of those things, you know, uh, were I would think driving forces in my, in my childhood. Yeah. So would you qualify it as driving forces or would you qualify it as barriers or challenging to your own growth? I would say, I don't think I, I think for me, so I was a competitive athlete as a kid. And so for me, there's not really a difference between a barrier and something that drives me, if that makes any sense. And so I think most of the things that have motivated me in the world were actually barriers and uh, or things that I thought I might not yet be able to achieve or things that I hadn't achieved yet. Um, and I honestly think to this day, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, I think I work in an area that's kind of like perpetual challenge, you know, and it's all about barriers. And that also drives me, you know? So when I was a kid, that might've looked like trying to win a swimming race, you know, and having some really staunch competitors in front of me, it might've looked like feeling excluded or bullied and trying to figure out how do I connect and how do I fit in? But like, for me, there's like, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, the barrier um, and the driver, you know? I like that. The barriers are not here to hold you back, but they are here to motivate you to overcome them. So if I, would that be right if I say that your way of overcoming those challenges is just to address them and leverage them as a motivation? Yeah. And I think, I, I don't know if, I, I clearly did not know this about myself as a kid, but I grew up to be a strategist, right? And what I've learned about being a strategist is that strategists are motivated by seeing a barrier and figuring a way around it or seeing an opportunity and finding a way to it, you know? Um, and so I think that part of me is very deep in me as in that motivation or that connection. To, like when someone says to me, you cannot do something like I have to, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So tell me I can't yeah. and I will show yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's just part of my personality or my character for sure yeah oh I, I love that and I, I can see a lot of similarities between your personality and 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 mine and before we we move further in the conversation I would like to welcome uh, the beautiful people John is joining us live thank you so Padma Priya is here hello welcome our friend and longtime supporter Marcello is here thank you for joining us Marcello uh, we have some people from Canada. We have Mawash. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Mawash from Bonn in Canada. Uh, Austin also joining from Toronto. And Ursula joining us from Luxembourg. I love that. We have a beautiful international beautiful community, community here. Yeah. You have built a career in the public sector, right? And And, and when I think about public sector, one of the first few words that are coming to mind is conformity, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, how, how do you evolve in a professional environment that is so far away 
from your personality where you maybe feel like there is so much that you can do, but ultimately you are quite limited. How do you find the balance to be aligned with who you are while growing your career in an environment that might not be the most suitable for you? Well, even that was an example of me being a challenger. So my my dad, who was an incredible mentor to me, passed away when I in 2019. And at his funeral, and my speech at his funeral, I said, when I became a bureaucrat, it was the single greatest act of rebellion towards my father that I had in my life, okay? And which was a joke because my dad was a great entrepreneur. My mom, a journalist and also an entrepreneur. They were both self-made, self-created people that didn't like to work at institutions. And my dad found it to be the strangest curiosity of his life that his challenger daughter went to become a bureaucrat. And so it was kind of a family joke. Um, but, you know, it's funny. I It made perfect sense and no sense at all being in the public sector. The perfect sense was I've been a person that's kind of obsessed with the problem of inequality and of social justice and of you know, wanting to be part of building a better society since I was a kid. And, you know, when I was a kid, they were much smaller words, but same ideas and feelings. Um, and so the, it didn't make sense to me when I was in my early 20s to think about a world in the corporate world or a, a career in the corporate world. I kind of thought um, I need to be in the public sector because where else am I going to work on on kind of societal issues? Um, but of course, you're 100% right. I was a complete wrong fit in so many ways in the public sector. I think I made it work for me that I was a wrong fit. And I think that's how ultimately I became a strategist. Um, I started my career in public policy. I got really frustrated with public policy really fast. And the reason yeah. I got frustrated with it was because I felt like in, in the policy world, people want you to work on things one file at a time. And without having the words for it at the time, I learned that I was a systems thinker and like I couldn't work on one problem without working on many interconnected problems. And so as my career developed, I got more and more interested in strategy because I wanted to change the systems that I was working in. I wanted to speed them up. I wanted to get them to do the things that they needed to do for people. And I needed to figure out ways to do that. So I sort of taught myself strategy um, and then ultimately stepped into more strategic roles and then ultimately like full-fledged strategy roles that weren't policy roles anymore. But even then, I didn't fit. <laughs> yeah. at all. I was, you know, I was definitely a square peg in a round whole. And, um, but I, you know, I think it's like, you know, I'm not sure that I would have fit in any kind of organizational environment. Like, I think the truth is like, I just like my dad, I'm an entrepreneur. And, um, and I, at the time I was an entrepreneur, you know, yeah. it was, I thought of my job as being, how do I make these systems that I work in live their public mandates to the fullest? And how can I find a route there? And of course there are a million barriers between me and that. <laughs> so, oh. Yeah, right. we know that. <laughs> right. but, yeah. Would you say that the fact that you couldn't fit in anywhere is one of the reasons you decided to launch your own company? Yeah, and I think, um, yes, because I think, you know, it's, it's uh, for me, I think, first of all, I've always had ideas about companies that I wanted to start, and none of them were interesting enough earlier in my career to actually make me take that leap. 
And it took a, a deep, deep frustration with my work, coupled with some family dynamics, my dad dying actually, or my dad gets, you know, kind of starting that end journey and, you know, life that brought me to the place of being like, now is the time. But I think honestly, in every institution I worked in, I always knew that that wasn't going to be the end of my story. You know, yeah. I had a very deep knowing uh, from a very early age that that would be the case. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about it. You know, I, I usually qualify myself as being unemployable, <laughs> right? <laughs> Because of the same reasons, wherever I go, you know, uh, I, I feel when, when I feel like I am limited, which is oftentimes the case, no matter if you work for a company or non-for-profit organization, most of my experience is, is in the non-for-profit sector, hmm. but it's normal. You are limited to some extent because, you know, there is a workplace culture, there are the rules, there is the mandate and all of these, those things that are normal that you have to follow. But for me, the fact as soon as I know that I am limited in my capacity of action, you know, in my capacity to create, my capacity to deliver when we know, and you said it very uh, rightly, uh, you know that by being strategic and combining and having a multi-level approach, you could solve the problem, but that you can't. <laughs> you can't because you have to do step by step and one by one when it takes two years to, do, to, to, to get an outcome that you could have achieved within six months, for example. So yeah. that's why I decided to create my own company as well. So I could do me and provide the solutions to the issue um, I have identified in a way that I believe is more effective. So, but it takes a degree of self-awareness, a, a certain degree of self-awareness. And I feel especially today's and especially with the with with the younger generation coming on the on the on the on the workforce now in, into the market. So I'm a millennial, now Gen Z, they are like uh, the majority of people employed uh, in the workforce. And I feel like we are so used to be bombarded by messages from, you know, society, what is expected from social media, what it should look like mm -hmm. based on whoever standards that we are we are losing that connection with ourselves and that it, it becomes more and more difficult to be self aware of who we are what we were meant who we were meant to be what are our strengths our weaknesses because we are trying trying to follow a model we are trying to fit in right and to be yeah. molded the way we are supposed to be molded in order to to look good on people's eyes so how did you develop that self-awareness and and what would you advise to uh, 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 the the people listening and watching to us today uh, to do in order to develop that self-awareness so i mean that's an amazing question and i'm the mother of two daughters and i you know watching them grow up and uh, surrounded by social media is actually a really scary prospect for exactly that reason i'm like how can i help them connect into who they really are, not who they're supposed to be, is a big question that goes in my mind a lot. Um, I would say for me, you know, uh, two things. Number one, one is very personal to me. I describe myself as an empath. Um, I feel emotions incredibly different, you know, deeply. I feel energy really deeply. I feel other people's energy, not just my own, which is something I've kind of had to learn to deal with as a, as a person who does work that can be quite heavy uh, from time to time. Um, 
and working in a world that can be quite heavy uh, far too often. Um, so for me, I think part of the knowing comes from my like intuition about myself, um, which I think has been strong since I was a very young person. And I'm not sure because I think it goes back so deeply in my life experience that I can like locate that to like a specific moment in time. I can just tell you that I kind of had a very strong sense of self from a very early age. Um, mm -hmm. And I think some of that I have to credit my, my parents and my upbringing for because my parents were really like contrarian humans. Like they really existed for their, you know, and my mother continues to be a person who follows her curiosity and follows her interests um, and pursues a life that's of interest and concern to her, you know? And so I think they gave me this amazing model uh, that you need to find those things in yourself, those things that kind of light you up. Um, when I think about other people and I've like over the years have had like, you know, the joy of being able to like either mentor or guide friends or, you know, colleagues or uh, people that I've worked with and sometimes just people that I've met. Um, I always feel like the thing is it's about finding those things that do actually just bring you absolute joy, yeah. you know, or that make you feel like you can never satiate the interest even if you have zero skills, you know, because where you have that level of drive, you can, you will, you have the motivation to build the skills, you know? Um, and so for me, like I've mostly spent my life following my curiosity and my interests and built skills that were useful to helping me pursue those interests, which has kept me really connected to myself. And now obviously there have been many points in my life where I felt radically disconnected from myself. So it's not like always like a joyous story, yeah. or, you know, there have been times, I mean, I've, I've had jobs where I'm like, who the heck am I? Where am I? What is this? <laughs> what yeah. am I doing with my life? Mm -hmm. I've had moments of huge impasse where I've been like, I don't know what's next or how, you know? So it's not like this, it, but somewhere in there, I think, there's been a kind of guiding voice or intuition that's given me a clear sense of, am I in a place where my energy is growing and prospering or am I in a place where my energy is dwindling and dying, you know, to be yeah. really fast about it. And so I think most of the major decisions I've made in my life and my career come from following the great energy versus following uh, the dwindling energy which actually it can be quite easy to do, right? Like there are times where you feel like it's your job to fix the dwindling energy versus yeah. find the source of light, you know? Um, but I feel like I've been blessed with mentors in my life who have reminded me to follow that light, uplifted part of myself, you know? And, and you know, it's very interesting what you're saying here because it's hard to do it alone, it's hard to achieve it alone. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why mentorship, you have been a mentor and you have mentioned also mentors uh, being uh, uh, fundamental to you, you know, discovering yourself and unleashing your full potential. And, and I want to remind everyone, you know, that uh, even when we say we are self-made, even when we project an image that is quite successful, right, especially on LinkedIn, <laughs> uh, there are a couple of things that are important. First of all, of course, we all of us, every single one of us, we avoid the laws, right? We avoid to be in trouble. We uh, avoid to feel down. But actually, it's through those moments that you will reveal yourself i feel like it's when you have the back the, the 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 your back against the wall yeah. that you like what do i do and you have no other choice at that point to listen to your gut feeling and this gut feeling usually is the direction that 
you were meant to follow, but because of, you know, again, social media, society, family expectation, a lot of different things will choose voluntarily to ignore that inner voice mm-hmm. and to choose a path that is not our calling. So I can really resonate to what you were saying because it's really in the in the worst moment or the most challenging moment without mm-hmm. being dramatic here, but that, you know, Yours, your your inner self will reveal itself to you. Yeah. I don't know if it makes sense. No, <laughs> but I think it does. Idea. And I think if you actively listen, like I actually find, and I, I, this might sound strange, but in, in decision points in my life, I have found myself asking the question in my mind, which way do I go? You know? And I have tended to hear an answer, not like a literal answer, but like to have that sense of clarity when I voice the actual question, you know, Um, which sometimes I, sometimes it's like, I feel like it's not even about listening. It's about being afraid to ask the question in the first place. Like, should I go here or should I go there? Should I do this or should I do that? So I feel like if you can just be brave enough to ask yourself the question, the answer is usually pretty plain. Yep. A hundred percent. So now you have taken your challenger mindset and personality uh, to Uh, from, you know, building a career to launching and building a business. Mm. And and so what are the the main setbacks that you are facing when trying to challenging those big organizations so maybe you can uh you can tell us what you do with your company title and then you know how you are challenging those big companies uh to 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 make the change happen because this is what it is about i would love to so thank you so my company is called title equality and uh the the reason we exist in the world is because uh, i i honestly feel like the problem of inequality is perhaps the greatest challenge for humanity of our time and so i want to be part of solutions to the problem of inequality and my co-founder who I was blessed to meet early in my business journey. I went out on my own, left my day job, and I was like, I'm going to do the thing. And I was like, what the heck is the thing? And then I met my co-founder. I knew it had to do with inequality, but I didn't know what shape it would take. And actually, at first, it took a few different shapes before it became what it is today. Um, But I think, uh, you know, even when we started this business, and I really want to credit, it's like really two minds that made this business. I can't take all the credit for it. It's me and my co-founder, Kristen, and now we've got a beautiful team who are even better minds bringing it to life. Um, But, you know, what we saw was a problem. And I feel like most great businesses start with a problem. And for me, it was a problem that I like really felt deeply when I was inside organizations. And that was that organizations just seem to be riddled with inequality. And they seem to have no viable solutions to solve any of those problems. And I got really curious about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really like confused about what it was trying to accomplish. Because in the organizations that I worked in, there would be like one person, maybe two people in these huge systems who had the title of DEI leader. And yet they were like being expected to transform these enormous, complex, unwieldy systems, like with no teams with no resources and oftentimes with no tools or solutions, you know, or the tools and solutions that they had, I didn't see making a difference in terms of the way people made decisions. Like were they making those organizations more equitable or were they just things that we tick boxes for? Right. So like this business started with a kind of like, could we do that better? 
Could we do that differently? Is there a way to build equality better in organizations, which is really like the guiding question that title equality exists to try to answer. Um, and what we've realized is that actually that is holding a challenge function because today, or we started in 2018, 2019, and back then there was really, there were only like two or three ways that organizations did diversity, equity, and inclusion. They did unconscious or implicit bias training. They might've done cultural competency training, and they might've done some events and had some groups that got together and talked about affinity. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, none of those things in and of themselves or even as a group were driving true change in terms mm -hmm. of the way organizations made decisions for the people that they touch, whether that's employees or customers or patients or other forms of stakeholders or whatever. So in a way, we started our business and inadvertently began to challenge the DEI industry and to say, like, does this work? And like, is this the way we should be doing this? And we started to challenge companies to be saying, like, is this what you should be spending your money on? Or is there a different way to think about how do we make change? And so we ultimately came up with two new methodologies in this space that came from utter frustration, which honestly is where the best business ideas come from, from you being truly pissed off with the way <laughs> the world is and trying to find a way to respond and to fix it. And so, you know, but that does, does that, does that get immediately embraced? No, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> really mad at you first. Yeah. Right. The people that you're, you know, we upset an industry at first, like we were like a literal disruptor, you know, because we came in with a different approach, a different way of, and we said, there's a problem with the way we're trying to solve these problems. Right. So I remember at the very beginning, I mean, that incurred really not very favorable responses. In fact, some very difficult responses. And there were many, many moments that you asked about, like, what are the, you know, the hardships that you faced in that? There were moments where I had major wobbles and I was like, I can't do this. You know, like, I'm not brave enough and I'm not sure I can withstand the scrutiny. And I have had moments like that in the last two weeks, like literally, like those moments wow. don't go away. Right. Yeah. If you're going to challenge what is you're going to meet resistance, you know, resistance is like the foe of all change and of all change makers, you know, and I'm sure you face it all the time, Doreen too, you know, <laughs> okay, like we had a little brief, you know, <laughs> but resistance is a, is a constant. Yeah. People don't invite you to be a disruptor, right? You have and they to, don't like it. No. They don't invite you, you and they don't yourself. like it. You have to invite yourself. And then as my dad used to say, if you're going to do something that really matters, you have to piss a few people off, yeah. right? So, you know, that's really the way I see the work. So I would say there are barriers literally every day and every week. And like I said at the beginning, that's what inspires me and gets me up in the morning. I mean, once in a while, I kind of want to pull my duvet over my head and call it quits. But mostly yeah. I get up and try again. You know? Yeah, we we know we know that feeling <laughs> too 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 well actually. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so as you said, you know, when you are the challenger, you are not invited. Uh, we don't like you. We don't want you. We don't want to hear about you. Uh, and, and I feel there was this, this status quo, you know, when it comes to DAI, where those big companies, they made this big announcement about, you know, pouring that much money into DEI initiatives, uh, an efficient and non-effective DEI initiatives, I want to say, mm. and I want to say it out loud. And also those companies who uh, believed that, yes, you know, you hire one or two people uh, from 
a, a diverse background, so we are uh, all done. Done. We're done. Inequality doesn't exist anymore. Magic, right? Exactly. Yes, we are good. Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 I feel like there was this status quo where you couldn't challenge them at some point where DEI became trending. You know, when it builds the momentum because, oh, but you cannot challenge an organization that is trying to do good, right? Mm -hmm. But wanting to do good, as you said, if you are not equipped, if you don't have the right tools, if you don't have the, the right strategy, the right approach, it's useless. And so what are some of the, if you are willing to share with us, of course, mm -hmm. some of the most um, harsh or negative a response setback that you received from those big companies when trying to challenge them? I think what I've learned is that, and so I can, I'm thinking, I'm not obviously not going to talk about these environments, but I can think of two client experiences in, in particular where I faced like incredibly uh, steep resistance. Um, leaders who just, they refuse to look under the hood. What they wanted from me was to bless them and say, you're wonderful. Have a nice, have a nice time. You get a gold star. And I don't work like that. I'm like so interested in problems, right? So, and it, every organization of any scale has equity problems and they're, and they should be exciting your organization, not, not something that you should hide. Like, I think the most equitable organizations are aware that they are constantly becoming more equitable by trying to spot those problems and fix them. But in these two really difficult jobs, um, I think what I realized was the tension, you know, between, you know, appearances or maintaining them and, and maintaining curiosity as a discipline in an organization. So if you're going to become an equitable organization, you have to challenge yourself to be the most curious about where are problems of inequality showing up today and where could we fix them and how could we fix them, right? If yeah. you're going to be a PR uh, engine saying you're doing stuff, then you won't allow anyone to ask those questions. And for me, my, my clients today, I focus on serving those curious organizations because I can't do much with the PR oriented organizations, yeah. right? Questions are always going to make an organization that thinks it's smartest to try to fool your audience, right? Uh, th that's, that's never going to work for them, right? Mm -hmm. But I put my money on organizations that are curious about the people they serve and are curious about the people who serve them as in employees and who want to know how to get things out of those people's way so that they can thrive, right? To me, that's actually what makes a great commercially successful organization, or a relevant public sector organization that's actually living its mandate. And so the system that we invented, which is called Equity Sequence, is actually a system of equitable innovation, a system of five questions. And so no, no accident that they're questions, not answers. It's a discipline of curiosity that you can bring to any decision an organization makes. So, you know, when I think of the challenging environments, the challenging environments were environments where the resistance was, I don't want you to ask your questions and I do not want to hear your answers or my people's answers or my customers' answers. I just want to say what is. And if you want to be that kind of organization or leader, like have at it. But if you want to build a more equitable world, if you want to see better products and services that serve more people better, then that curiosity is something that you cannot just stop after you make a statement, right? It needs to be something that lives in perpetuity in an organization. 
But would you say that it's a lack of humility, maybe arrogance? Like sometimes all of the above, I would say fear, actually, I would say unbridled fear that they might be wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. So like I try to like create an environment with my clients and I, I, you know, we're getting better as a business to find clients that resonate with what we do. It takes time to do that. It doesn't happen overnight and it's not done yet. We're still on that journey. Right. But what I will say is that when you have um, uh, a really resistant response of any kind, you know, what tends to drive that is not knowing what's around the corner, right? So mm-hmm. it's like wanting to like clamp down the risk that we might have to change the way we do things. And what people in an organization, especially leaders can sometimes feel about that is if we change how we do things, will I still be valuable here? Will I still be relevant here, right? Mm-hmm. That's the question that it elicits in people. It doesn't come out overtly, but that's like the question under the surface, right? So. In those environments where I've had a really difficult client interaction, what I hear is I am terrified, right? Mm -hmm. But what they project is often arrogance or a lack of humility or an all-knowing, right? But I kind of always see those as masks for what's really underneath, you know? Mm -hmm. That's great. You are being able to, you have developed this capacity to read between the lines. And I believe that what will make you even more efficient in your work. So we are um, coming uh, to the end of uh, this conversation. One last question. When looking back at your journey, what advice would you give your younger self? So I often say to clients and friends, never make change alone. I call that my number one rule of making change. And I would say for the better part of the first 12 years of my career, I tried to do it alone a lot. So um, I hurled myself into brick walls with no scaffolding or whatever the right metaphor is, but I just I just kept going, right? Yeah. Force will make change, yeah. right? What I learned as I got older and more experienced, like I didn't go into business for myself until I was 38. So I had, you know, a pretty long public sector career before I I went into business. Um, It took me a long time to learn how important it is to start by building allies and then shaping a vision together uh, before trying to go into that stiff resistance. So that's something that I teach in my work now. Uh, It's something that I live in my work now. And of course, from time to time, I forget it and remember it. And I'm like, "Yeah." yeah. Right? Hello. Practice <laughs> <laughs> what you preach. Don't forget. Right? You know, I mean, sometimes you just, you're like, oh yeah. Right. But I mean, that's, that's what I would, I would say to myself, you don't have to do the whole lift. You only really need to make a ripple that that ripple can lead to an enormous change. And you need to mind other people that can make those ripples with you. And if you don't have them yet, take the time to find them, you know? Yeah. Very important. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your your story with us today. I will see you uh, next week for another uh, episode of Stand Out from the Crowd. You take care, you stay safe, and I will see you soon. Thank you, Anna, and thank you, everyone. Thank you, Doreen. Great to see you. Bye.